0: Amen. Well, today the scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 22. If you have your your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. We're looking at a series of sermons on discipleship today. We're looking at Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 22. This is a reading of God's word. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose again and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes. And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Amen. This is a reading of God's word. Please join me in prayer. Father, we give you thanks this morning as we gather together in your name. We pray, God, that as we hear your word, Your word would be life and truth to us. Give us grace, God, as we hear now this message. Spur our hearts uh, to love and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can someone close the back doors right now? Well, this morning, uh, we are right in the middle of a series of sermons. We're looking at this theme of discipleship. And the theme of discipleship is, it's really important, uh, especially in our city right now because of how secular our society has become. Uh, in generations past, the majority of people growing up in the United States, uh, grew up in neighborhoods, in cities where the majority culture were Christians. You know, when the people or your family and friends, when they're all Christians, it, you can just go with the flow. It's a lot, lot easier being a believer with surrounded by a culture of other believers. Uh, in some places, that's still the case. We just had a uh, one of our members. She grew up in L.A., and she decides she's going to go to graduate school in Alabama. And she just came and visited us, and she said what was striking to her Growing up in LA and going to Alabama, she said the second question people ask me after they introduced after they asked me my name is they asked me what church I went to. They just assumed that she was a Christian and she went to church. And she said that was that was wild to her because growing up in LA, nobody asked you that question. In LA nobody asks you what church you go to. That's not a question we ask each other, especially if we haven't met each other. The assumption in cities like LA, especially in downtown, is that you are not a believer. That's the assumption. We assume that uh, the people that we work with, probably the vast majority of them, are not believers. And we just assume that. In fact, people are, not only are not believers, but more than that, they probably have a lot of maybe resentment or negative ideas about believers. And... Uh, And that's difficult. Uh, It's difficult. And sometimes you might feel like at the workplace, especially if you're surrounded by people who are not believers, to keep quiet about your faith. You know, because it's not a comfortable thing. People might harbor resentment, bitterness toward you. And I think what we're starting to see, especially in our society today, is that people in the West are starting to feel the idea that to follow Jesus is costly. It's costly. It's costly. We're starting to recognize things that people all over the world, Christians around the world, even today, in some societies around the world, if you're a believer, you're thrown out of your household. It's a costly thing. The government persecutes you. Uh, in the first century, Christians were thrown to the lions. They were lit. They were set on fire for their faith. And In the first century and going forward, Christians realized that to be a Christian was a costly sacrifice. It was a costly sacrifice. And people in the West are starting to realize that. We're starting to catch up to this idea that to be a Christian, we need to count the cost. Today we're going to look at this idea that Jesus, before he has anyone follow him, he has people sit down and think about the cost of discipleship. And we're going to describe discipleship in a couple ways. Discipleship means dying to yourself, but it also means being raised in Jesus. Today we're going to talk about the cost of discipleship and describe discipleship as death in Jesus, dying with Jesus, but also being raised in Jesus. And we're going to look at those three things. And the first thing I want to look at is this idea of The Costliness of Discipleship Throughout the series we're looking at the Gospel according to Matthew And we say this is a good gospel To study because Matthew Himself was a disciple, he knows something About discipleship Matthew, in in Matthew chapter 8 we're catching up To Jesus. And in Matthew 8, he's at the peak of his ministry. The word of Jesus has gotten out. The word on Jesus has gotten out. Jesus is the number one trending topic on Twitter. Everyone's talking about him. People are following him. There's masses and crowds of people that want to see miracles and hear his teaching. Anybody else in Jesus' position would have loved everything that was happening. They would have tried to build their brand. They would try to capitalize on all the success and the popularity. But here's the shocking thing about Jesus. He didn't love the crowds. Uh, he wasn't enthralled by the applause. In verse 18, we read this incredible sentence in verse 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go t- over to the other side. Matthew chapter 8, the crowds, they all want to see Jesus. They want a piece of Jesus. What does Jesus do? He says, we gotta take off. We're going to the other side. Jesus did not trust the crowd. Everybody else would have run to the crowds. You know, everybody else would have basked in the applause of the crowds. But Jesus gave orders to leave the crowds. Jesus didn't want to be a celebrity. He wanted to be a savior. He didn't want the applause and the crowds. He knew that they weren't really there for him and didn't understand his mission. One of the strategies Jesus used to escape the crowds was that he preached out of a boat. This was a brilliant strategy because after Jesus preached, he could just sail off. People could not follow him. They'd have to actually literally get in a boat to go after Jesus. So he regularly preached in the boat. Afterwards, he would take off to the other side of the lake. He would escape the crowds. But as Jesus went to the other side of the lake on this particular occasion, there are two persistent men who want to follow. They, they want more than being in a crowd. And We said the discipleship last week is stepping out of the crowd into a one-on-one encounter with Jesus. These men do that. The first man rose up to Jesus in verse 19. He's described as a scribe. A scribe was a religious leader. A scribe was someone who was committed to learning about the sacred truths of scripture. Following a, a very specific lifestyle. By and large, in the first century, the scribes were against Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus. But here's a scribe who actually wanted to follow Jesus. He leads the crowd, and in verse 19, he goes to Jesus one-on-one, and he says, teacher, I will go with you wherever you go. This man wants to separate himself from the crowd. He wanted a real relationship with Jesus. He wanted to be a disciple. Wherever you go, Jesus, I want to go. You would think that Jesus would be excited. If after service, a new visitor came up to me and said, Pastor Dennis, I want to be a member of City Light Church. I probably would not say to you, well, hold on a sec. Slow your roll. Do you know what it takes to be a member of City Light Church? I want you to think about all that it takes. I probably would not do that. I probably would try to just encourage you. Most people would do that, not Jesus, Jesus, this man is excited. He wants to follow. He wants to leave everything behind. But instead of encouraging him, what does he do? He cautions him. And he says, do you know what that means? This is what he says in verse 20. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Instead of accepting him immediately, he challenges him. He says foxes and foxes have holes, birds have nests, every, even the smallest creatures have places of safety, of refuge. They all have homes. He says, but the son of man, that's a title from the book of Daniel. It's a messianic title. It meant the king, the messiah. But in the irony of the situation, he says the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He's saying, Do you understand what it means to follow me? If you're going to follow me, the road I'm taking is a long, difficult journey. Without rest, you need to count the cost. He gives him a picture of all of the costs up front. I don't know if you've ever signed up for a service like high speed internet. And to draw you in, uh, high speed internet providers will give you an introductory rate. It's like $9.99 a month. And they have all these perks and benefits. They say sign up for us, it's only $9.99 a month. And you also get free Hulu, Netflix, Disney Plus, all of that for free. And you think, what a great deal. And you sign up for that. And then next month, what happens? Well, next month they didn't tell you, but it's $79.99 the next month. And all of those subscriptions expire. And by the way, that speed is not guaranteed. They'd help you all of these things and in order to cancel, you gotta to talk to Sue. Kate and Mary, from from customer retention, be on hold for an hour. But they don't tell you all of that. They don't tell you about the cost up front. They hide it. They want to talk, t- tell you all about the benefits. They don't want to tell you all about the costs. But what does Jesus do? It's so refreshing in one way. Because Jesus, right up front, he says, before you sign up... Before you're a disciple, I want to tell you exactly what that entails. I want to tell you exactly what that entails. It's a, you have to travel light. You have to live a life that is uncomfortable. We're on a journey. We're going to be on a long journey. To back that up, he has another disciple come to, come to Jesus in verse 21. Another disciple said to him, Lord, Let me go first and bury my father. Here's another prospective disciple. Notice when the rabbi calls him teacher, this second prospective disciple calls him Lord. He says, you're more than a teacher. You're a king. You're the king. He gets it. Only one problem. He says to Jesus, let me first go and bury my father. There's a couple of different ideas of what is happening. One is that his father has recently died and needs to be buried. More likely, scholars say in the first century, to bury your father was an idiom. In the first century, that idiom was the idea that he had already buried his father, but now he has to take care of his father's estate. He has to take care of his mother, who's now a widow. He has to take care of his father's property. He has all these administrative things to take care of with the passing of his father. And he's asking Jesus probably for a one to two year delay. He says to Jesus, I want to follow you. Can I get a deferral? Can we put this off for about a year? I'll catch up to you later, Jesus. It's a reasonable request. It's a reasonable request. What does Jesus say to him verse 22? Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus says to him, you know, in the first century, family was of ultimate significance. It was your past. It was your present. It was your future. It was your identity. It was your destiny. Family was all important. And Jesus is saying to him, I have to come before your family. Uh, my ministry, the ministry of life, has to come before this ministry of death. Jesus is saying, I have to be your ultimate priority in life. Although, if you think about it, in some sense, it seems like an outrageous demand for Jesus to make. If Jesus was just a human being, a person, or uh, just a leader, that would be an outrageous demand. The only reason Jesus can ask him to do that is Jesus is God himself. You know, this is the key to unlock everything about Jesus. He did his miracles. He actually forgives people for their sins. He does all of these things because he is God. Only God can ask you to be the ultimate priority in your life. Only your creator, redeemer, restorer, your true lover. Only he Can ask to be the ultimate thing in your life. Because only he can. And only when he is. Will you you be truly fulfilled. Jesus says to him. I need to be everything. I need to be the, the first thing. And he asks him to think about the cost. To sit down and think about it. So what does discipleship mean? In order to really count the cost, you have to really delve into the depths of what discipleship is. And I wanted to to say these two things about discipleship. And we're looking at this theme throughout the series. Discipleship, what does it ultimately essentially mean? What does it mean to follow Jesus? In order to count the cost, we need to know that. And really the first thing about discipleship, it means dying to yourself. Dying with Jesus. Dying with Jesus. Jesus says to all of his disciples and his prospective disciples, this phrase, which he repeats again and again. That phrase is, follow me. Was a disciple? Well, first, it means following Jesus. Notice that Jesus does not say, go and make extraordinary sacrifices for me. He doesn't say that. He says, follow me. You know, that separates Jesus from any dictator or despot. Uh, A dictator says, hey, go and leave your family, work round the clock, make all kinds of sacrifices for me, even though I would not do those things myself. But no, Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, follow me. In saying that, he's saying, I'm going to be your example. I'm going to make those sacrifices and follow me as I do those things. In, one of the questions we have with the, quest, uh, the statement, follow me, is the, the most obvious uh, question is to where? Jesus, where are you going? Where am I following you to? That's the next pro- possible question. And the answer all throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is on a journey to Jerusalem. Jesus, fo- Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says, uh, follow me to the place of death. Because my whole mission in life is to give up my life for the sake of others. Follow me as I do that. That's what it means to follow me. Discipleship means following Jesus by giving our life away. And we see examples of that in verse 20. Right from the start, Jesus says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but I'm the son of man and I got nowhere to lay my head. Jesus left the glory of his home in heaven. And he came down to Skid Row. He came down to a place of suffering. He'd have nowhere to lay, lay his head. Throughout his ministry, Jesus didn't have not, did not have an Airbnb. He did not have hotels or motels. He was on the go. He was often sleeping in boats. We see Jesus napping. Why? That's where he got his sleep. Jesus was always on the move. Always uncomfortable. Uh, the passage right before this, we got a glimpse of it, of an average typical day in Jesus' life. This is what it looked like in verse 16. The evening they brought for him many who were p- oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here we get a typical day in the life of Jesus. He was surrounded every day by people who were the sickest people in society. People who had terminal illnesses. They would all gather around Jesus. And what happens to people who are constantly surrounded by sick people? And the answer is they get sick themselves. That's why in verse 17 it says of this, of Jesus, a prophecy from Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That Jesus' ministry, he was so surrounded by the sick and the weary and the broken that he himself became sick. Jesus was like a doctor living in the West who decides to go to Asia to treat people with the coronavirus. And he himself, works day and night, and he himself gets sick with that virus treating people. Jesus ministered to the most vulnerable and broken and says he himself took our illness, our sickness. Jesus spent his whole life giving his life away. Ultimately, he goes to the cross where he lays down his life for his people. What motivates discipleship is the sacrifice of Jesus. We said that Jesus never tells you to do something that he himself did not do. So the man who has to leave his father and mother, uh, Jesus himself did that. How did he do that? He left his father's home. Uh, he did not prioritize his own father. But he leaves that heavenly abode. And he comes to this earth to give up his life for us, for his people. Jesus' sacrifice is that ultimate sacrifice. And that's, that, that's the essence of the gospel. He does that all for us. He le- leaves his father's house. And he is cursed on our behalf. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus' sacrifice is once and for all. It's redemptive in a way that none of our sacrifices are. But uh, if we're in Jesus, if we want to follow Jesus, we are also called now to a life of sacrifice. We are also called to give our lives away. Philippians 2 3 to 4, the Apostle Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Think about all the ways we're constantly thinking about and obsessing about ourselves, our future, our job, our family. And Apostle Paul says, flip that all around. I want you to think now more about the needs of other people. I want you to live your life giving your life away like your Savior did. Discipleship means dying to ourself, living to God and for other people. One application of that is uh, the season of Lent. Uh, Adrian just mentioned that this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Uh, Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. Lent is 40 days excluding Sundays, which are always feast days. Lent is 40 days in preparation before we hit Easter. Lent historically has been a season where people fast. Typically, historically, people have fasted once or twice a week during Lent. Often during Lent, people give things up for Lent. And One way I would encourage you to think about Lent and practicing Lent is fasting from things that are hurting you. Fast from things that are hurting you. Think about things in your life that are destroying you, destroying your mental health. Uh, Things like social media, fast food, pornography, worry, anxiety. Use the next 40 days to fast from those things. Fast from things that are really destroying your life. They're hurting you. Free yourself from those things. Use those things and redeem the time you had spending time and spending money on those things and redeem those things. And use that free space now to connect with God and to bless other people with. Less is more. That's what Lent is about. You've heard of juice cleanses that cleanse your body. Lent is about a spiritual cleanse. Lent is about... A Marie Marie condo for your soul. It's about throwing out all the junk in your life. Things that are destroying you, polluting you, causing you anxiety and stress. Throw those things out during Lent. Fast from those things. And with the saved time and money, offer those things to God. Lent is a season of dying to yourself. It's a season for dying to the things that are killing you. They are killing you. And asking God, God, with that free spare time, would I come alive to things that really matter? This is a season of dying. But here's the final point. Uh, Ultimately, the ministry of Jesus and following Jesus is about dying to herself. But finally, ultimately, it's about living. Discipleship means resurrecting with Jesus. When we die to ourselves... And we die in Christ, the promise is we will be born again to new life. When you look at the ministry of Jesus, what you see is that his ministry is not a ministry of death, but ultimately life. Everywhere Jesus goes, he brings life. We see this in verse 14, when Jesus enters Peter's house. What does he do? It says, when he enters his house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose again and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirit with the word and healed all who were sick. Jesus' entire ministry, wherever he goes, he brings life. He goes to see Peter, his mother-in-law, tenderly touches her hand, raises her. She begins to serve them. He goes to all these people who are demon-possessed, and we kind of think of that as some extraordinary evil. Let me tell you something. You know, we all have some kind of demon in our life. Some kind of thing that is evil, that is driving our life. It could be lust. It could be pride. It could be greed. It could be work. It could be family. We all have something in our life that is driving our lives. And Jesus wants to set us free from those things. He wants to exercise All that is driving us in our life, that is driving us to the ground, that is unhealthy, that is not beautiful. And he's come to free us from those things. Jesus has come to bring life. When you think about Jesus' life, theologically you can break it up in two ways. There's death and there's life. Jesus has come into this world to suffer, to die. But after death is resurrection, ascension, and new life. To be a follower of Jesus then means those two things, that we die to ourselves, we die in Jesus, but we're also raised to new life. So in Philippians 3, verse 10 to 11, Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If you are a believer, you're united to Jesus, his death and his life. Paul says, I am united and I united to his death and his sufferings. But, I'm also united to his resurrection and his life. Paul Miller wrote a book this last year called The J-Curve. And he explains the Christian life as a J-Curve. I have an image of that. And when you look at Jesus' life, there was life. He came to this earth, but he suffered. There's brokenness. There's humiliation. It craters at death. But after death, it rises to a new life. And that resurrection life is higher than the original life that started. And Paul Miller's point is that the Christian life follows a J-curve. That all throughout our life, we're going to experience tragedy and despair and loss. And that's the death point. But if we're in Christ, we're continually going to experience resurrection. Not just in the life to come, but all throughout our life. When we die to ourselves, all throughout our life, we will also experience resurrection. We'll experience newness of life. And that resurrection is going to be higher than the life that we started with. That's the the tail end of the J-curve. And I want to give you some examples of that. Uh, my, my nine-year-old son, he recently, uh, I've kind of talked about him. He loves basketball. My son is obsessed with basketball. He has basketball posters all over his wall. He collects basketball cards. Uh, sometimes he just uh, goes ask asks Siri about rosters, and he copies the rosters of every basketball team in the league. He's in two basketball leagues, not just one, but two. One's a recreational league, and one is a very competitive travel league. Uh, and it's very competitive. And the last, this last year, he's been struggling to keep up with these boys who are traveling and playing in a very competitive tournaments. And I've watched his games, and he struggled to have any kind of game time. He's only playing five or ten minutes, something like that. And he's been struggling to keep up. He loves it, but he can't keep up with these other boys. This, a couple months ago, I received an email from his coach of the travel team. I said, is going to have to demote Beckett from this team to the practice squad? It's a demotion. I didn't know how to break that to my son. It's kind of, how do I put this to him? And I told him that news, and he was just silent. Just kind of felt devastated by that news. And I was talking to him, and he was at the bottom of this J-curve. And I was telling him, I want to walk through that with him. And I said, you know like it, basketball doesn't have to be your life i told him you know you you're loved by god and your parents and your your identity is not in that basketball it's that that's not your life that's not your destiny that's not your future that's not everything and he kind of understood that it was still hard for him but he understood that and he surprised me a few weeks later uh when i was talking to him about that And he said to me, Dad, you know, I don't have to play in that team. I can just play rec ball, and that's fine. He said, that's good. That's all I need. And I like to think that my talk had a little something to do with it, but I like to think that he realized that basketball was not his life. His life was found, hopefully, in Christ, in God. That wasn't everything. And guess what happened after that? Now when he plays ball, both in leagues, he's playing a lot better because he's playing a lot freer. He's not stressed about it. He's not trying to make the team. He's not anxious and nervous. It's just one thing in his life. And he's playing loose, free, and guess what? Joyfully. (laughs) Because it's not everything. It's just one thing. And he can just enjoy that and when you follow the J-curve in all of your life, you are going to experience all throughout your life trouble in your marriage, at work. You are going to have your ego crushed and bruised. You're going to experience pain and frustration. But if you understand the idea of the J-curve, understand tragedy and hardship as you're in your life as places where God can put to death your pride, your idolatry, and ask God, God, help me experience this in you. And when I do, raise me to new life. Bring me to a higher place. And in Jesus, that will happen. One day, ultimately, we will all die. And the people that we love will die. But in Christ, literally, one day, we will also be risen to new life. That we are like seeds that go in the ground. And we can, in Christ, be risen to this new life. Most of us, we don't want to go down in order to go up. We just want to go up. We just want blessings and God to be with us and to have delight. But in Christ, what happens is to go up, we first have to go down. We have to die to ourself, to our pride, to our idols, to our lust. And when we die, the promise is, that's what helps you in the Jacob is you know, hey, there's a resurrection coming. It's dark right now. But there will be light in Christ. I want to close with this uh, word from C.S. Lewis. And we'll close with this. This is what he says. This principle runs throughout all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day. And death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing, nothing you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Jesus and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Please join me in prayer. Father, we want to give you thanks for this word. And, and I pray, God, that uh, all the people here would have counted this cost of discipleship, of what it means to die to ourselves, to, to all the things that are driving our lives. And help us to know that things that are driving our lives are killing us. They're not true gods. We need you to rescue us. Pray, God, as we die to ourselves, that we would live a new resurrection life. A life of hope, a life of joy, a life of selfless service. I pray that as we lose our life, we would gain a real life. As we die to ourselves, you would give us a new self. And that we would know we are loved eternally that we have all of heaven as our inheritance. Help us to be a church of disciples, Father. Help us step out of the crowd, out of comfort. Help us to step into a life of service and worship for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.